this is a privilege for me uh, to speak with you. And um, I've been perking this message for months because God has perked this story uh, in my heart for years. And so I'm going to basically um, walk you through a story. And I'm asking that uh, my wonderful, wonderful, eternal friend, the Holy Spirit of God, is going to do what he does. And um, when I preach, when I speak the story, this amazing thing happens because it's not just telling a story. When we teach and preach the word, that becomes an instrument by the living God to custom apply what he wants to do in every person's mind and heart. So that takes a lot of pressure off of me. <laughs> but regardless, I'm going to open with prayer. And um, Barney, hold the tomatoes until the end, okay? Sorry. Right, let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We bow before your holy throne. We praise you that your son is at your right hand, alive, with scars. We praise you that you have entrusted the rule of the entire universe and kingdom to him. And by your spirit, you have linked us to him. We give you praise this morning. And now as we open your word... We pray that you would enlighten our hearts to see you anew, clearly, and that our love for you would be fanned into a flame. Help anyone who hears this story realize they're not too far. But those who think they're too close, Lord, may you get their attention. We ask for your help, and we look forward to what you're going to accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been uninvited? Oh, I wish I'd been invited to that. Well, I'll tell you, um, this past uh, May 2nd was um, something called the Met Gala. I wasn't invited. Um, <laughs> It is um, arguably the first uh, major um, uh, big celebration of the popular folks on the planet in New York City to raise money for the Metropolitan Art Museum. But everyone who is anybody in popular media gets an invite. Did you get yours? <laughs> I did not. Well, in May, uh, also, a little later, I was just kind of going through all the things I wasn't invited, and a couple of them because it struck my attention. Um, May 20th, 2026, I don't know if you've even heard of this, it's called the World Economic Forum, and it meets in Davos, Switzerland, and it's one of the most influential um, meetings of political and financial and um, environmental and other kinds of uh, folks on the planet. I'm talking uh, 
Bill Gates, I'm talking former presidents and vice presidents, not only from the United States, from, from all around the world. And you know what they're doing in May? They're having little breakout sessions to try to figure out how to fix this planet. And newsflash, they're extremely influential. Oh, by the way, how many of you were invited? Oh, you know your ticket was 71000 bucks to get in? I wasn't invited, thank you very much, all right? I wasn't invited, but how about this? How about being a teenager or a middle schooler and going into a new school and trying to get to the lunchroom? And you come out with your uh, food and you go, where am I going to sit? Uninvited. Well, I've got something to tell you this morning. God is throwing a banquet. You are invited. Now, my message is really simple outline. God's throwing a banquet. You're invited. RSVP required. If you don't know what RSVP means, it's French. Respondez, s'il vous plaît. It means, please respond. RSVP required. I'll make it real simple. The RSVP is genuine repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, I'm going to go into a whole lot more discussion about this, but I don't want you to forget the little points here that are kind of critical. The last point I'm going to make is simple. God is throwing a banquet. Do not miss it. Sermon over. No, I'm sorry. That's just the outline. Okay. Somebody's going, hey, man, priest, I like this guy. Sorry. Um, God's throwing a banquet. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Isaiah, immediately after the end of chapter 24 of Isaiah, where God's reign coming to earth was declared and praised. Now remember, you guys have all heard this expression. The Gospels talk about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Every biblical scholar who acknowledges, and by the way, even non-biblical scholars acknowledge that that was Jesus' message. The good news of the kingdom. Now, you know the word gospel. Guess what? It didn't start in the New Testament. The term gospel was actually Isaiah's term. It's the good news of the reign of God. Every one of you know that Isaiah 49 text, how beautiful are the feet of those who sing what? Good news. And what's the good news? Our God, what? Reigns. Ah. Now get the big picture here. God says, okay, um, I made the planet. I was going to dwell with you in the garden. You rebelled against me. Rebellion is the key word here. It not just fall, yes it is, but it's rebellion. It's the human rebellion. They chose sides against him. God said, I'm not done with you. I've got a plan. And he's going to work the plan. But he comes back. He grabs this nation through Abraham, Moses, and he says, all right, my plan is through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations on the earth. I've got a plan. I'm working the plan. Then he chooses um, David and says, you know what, David, you're going to be a part of this plan. You're my anointed king. But by the time we get to Isaiah, God's plan has enlarged. 
He's going, what? Yes, I'm coming back to Jerusalem, but I'm coming back to Jerusalem to take over the planet. Do you understand that? God says, I'm taking over. I'm coming back. Oh, by the way, when I show up, you're in really deep stuff. (laughs) Because when I show up, remember, I am holy. Now, we're going to talk about the Pharisees in a moment. They understand God is holy, but they don't know how holy. I'm holy. I am a consuming fire. Everything that gets close to fire burns up. Not because fire is mean. It's the nature of fire. Anything that draws close to this holy God that's unlike him is consumed. Did you know that? And no human being can bear to stand in his sight. Isn't it amazing that we will see Jesus called the Holy One? What's the first thing that happens when um, uh, Simon Peter has a little fishing experience with Jesus of Nazareth? He's in the boat. Jesus tells him to toss the net over here. And Simon all of a sudden realizes, this ain't no normal man. The first thing out of his mouth is, get away from me. I am a what? Sinner. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. No. Stop being afraid. I'm recruiting you. You got it. I'm recruiting you. But get this point. This feast of banquet is an inauguration banquet. It's an inauguration banquet. It's when God says, I'm going to take my Messiah and I'm going to set him as king and he's going to rule the earth for me. And so this banquet that I'm promising you is an inauguration banquet. All those who have chosen sides in my side through the Messiah, they'll be in the banquet. All those who have chosen against me, well, you get the point. Exclusion. This is not heaven and hell language. That's a great, wonderful discussion later, but this is banquet, non-banquet language. You're in, you're out. Now, here's the craziness. By the time of Jesus, this banquet was described in a lot of Jewish literature. And one of the really cool things, because in that text in Isaiah, um, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a feast of, of meat and a feast of wine. By the way, notice the, uh, the, the meat, high cholesterol, it's the fat, it's the fatty part of the meat. Now remember something, who got the, the, the fatty part of the meat in the offering system of Israel? God did. Are you getting this picture? He says, I'm going to share this delicacy with you. Now the wine, now my good Baptist friends, you, you, you deal with this, okay? Um, <laughs> But, 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 but God says, I'm going to, uh, the best wine you can imagine. By the time of Jesus, you can read the Jewish literature yourself, but you know what they thought the wine was going to be? One, they thought, okay, because it's going to be um, feast food from the temple, this is going to be the reconstituted future temple in the uh, age to come. Oh, by the way, it's going to be in Eden. Wow. God's going to reopen Eden. And guess what the wine was supposed to be? Are you ready for this? It says aged wine. By the time of Jesus, the wine was understood to be the wine that God had been waiting for to open up for Adam and Eve on day six that they screwed up and missed. 
So God's been holding this. You talk about aged wine, pull it out, pour it out, and enjoy it. Guys, when we think about eternity as this um, disembodied ghost Casper thing, plucking harps that bores me to death, please understand that God's got something beyond our understanding waiting for us. Do you understand this? But here's the point. We are invited. Now, here's the craziness of the New Testament. The new craziness of the New Testament is, is Jesus says, look, um, I'm the king. I'm the king. Now, in the time of Jesus, there was a normal way of understanding repentance. It's very simple. Three steps. Actually, four. Ready? One, you stop being the bad boy or bad girl you are. Stop doing it. Second, you make restitution. Third, you go grab a cow or a calf, whatever you can afford, and go to the temple. And then fourth, you start obeying the law of Moses. Make sense? One, two, three, four. But understand what happens here. Jesus steps on the stage and says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to forgive your sins if you simply trust in me. You're going to what? No, I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to make you right with God if you simply believe in me, if you trust in me. Now, to do that, you've got to first deal with something. It's a thing called sin. You have to acknowledge that between you and God, you're in trouble. He's going to redefine what repentance is. Repentance, by the way, simply means um, change your mind. Metanoia in Greek, if you want to check it out. But it's actually very specific. It's change your mind with regard to what you understand God to be like. He's holier than you thought. What you're like, <laughs> you're more in need than you thought. And you're in real trouble. Oh, no. Um, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus gives this wonderful story. Um, when the Pharisees are complaining against him, um, he will say... Um, they're grumbling because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he says, um, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I'm Dr. Jesus. Now, this image is really important because um, it says, basically, before you can go to the doctor, you have to acknowledge you need him. And what Repentance is, in a lot of people's mind, is, well, if you stop those silly symptoms and come see me, then I'll see you. Hold it. Jesus makes it really clear. No, acknowledge your condition, then come see me. And then you put your trust in me, the person. Now, please in, in, get this. Faith in Jesus is not faith in general. It's faith in a person. That's why the reason I love that doctor image that Jesus gave us. I have cancer. I'm okay. In fact, it's, I just have to go once a year. They check it down. It's all good. But you know what? When my doctor showed me that x-ray, my first reaction was, oy vey. My second one was then he said, microscopic, little, we got it under control, good, good, good. But you know what? I had to actually trust him that he knew what he was saying. 
entrust him with my very, very life. Are you getting this image? When you come to Jesus, repentance is the shock of the truth. Now, I'm getting ready to tell a story about Jesus, but I'm going to give you a whole lot of preface so that when I tell you this story, you're going, oh, this shock, yes, it's true. I'm terminal unless you do something. That's what it means to be a sinner. To accept it, acknowledge that truth right to your very being. And then acknowledge that Jesus is who he claimed to be and did what he claimed to do and will finish what he claimed he will do. And you say, okay, Dr. Jesus, it's you and me. I'm trusting in you. Does that make sense? You're trusting a person. Please understand something. I did not know that Jesus was enough. I thought I had to get my life back together again, right, and all this stuff. And I would hear sermons from a wonderful evangelist that I love, and I'm going to punch him in the face when I see him in glory because, because I thought, oh, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, Jesus, I believe in you. Yeah, I but I'm too much of a screw-up. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. So I'm going to be the most reluctant, hell-bound sinner on the planet. Until I finally understood that Christ was enough. Trusting in him, the person. And if you haven't do, done that yet, please don't wait. Because the banquet offer will be coming up in a second here, okay? Now, all that's preface to get me here. Luke 15, 1 to 2. Jesus is making the point all the way through this story. I'm going to do something that's unheard of. I'm going to do something that's unprecedented. I'm going to eat with you. Genuine tax collectors and sinners, I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to eat with you as an offer if you respond properly to me, if you understand your condition before God, that shock that says, I'm repenting, and then I trust in Jesus Guess what? This meal becomes very, very critically important. It becomes a picture of the future kingdom banquet. And so here they are enjoying this meal, and it's a picture of a reality that started now and will be completed in the future. Now, here's the audaciousness of Jesus. He will say, I am the one who determines who gets in that banquet and not. I am the Lord of the banquet. If you are right with me, I will punch your ticket. I will get you a seat. And you'll share that wonderful aged wine with me. Are you guys ready for Luke 15? Okay, I got to move. All right, here we go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Note their complaint. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Stop. Verses 1 to 2 begin our story. Verses 3 to 32 are going to be three parables addressed to the Pharisees. Now picture this. Cool. Haven't needed that. Cool. 
Jesus is on his elbow. I, I should have asked for a table. I could have went up here like this. Okay. Um, Jesus is on his elbow eating. He's eating right now. Now, remember, in chapters 13 and 14, he's already talked about the kingdom banquet several times. Chapter 13, uh, the question, who's going to be saved? And Jesus totally changes the question around. No, the question is not um, how many are going to be saved. It's are you rightly related to the Lord of the banquet? He switches the entire question. In chapter 14, a prominent Pharisee invites him to his house, and he's eating with them. And Jesus sees them trying to take the places of honor, and Jesus talks a parable there. And then afterward, to cut the tension, uh, the host of the, uh, of the party says, um, oh, blesses is he who gets to enjoy the uh, banquet in the kingdom. Ha ha. Jesus says, oh yeah, let me tell you a story. And then he tells a story about um, a person who was throwing a banquet, and um, he sent out invitations, and you guys all know the story, and everybody came back with legal but lame excuses. If you look at the narrative, it, they're all legal, but they're all lame. And what's really important is, yes, they're following the law, but you know what? They're dishonoring the host. They're dishonoring the one offering the invitation. Now, when we talk about sin and righteousness, we talked about it a little while ago. Remember something. Sin is a relational and legal term. Righteousness is a relational and legal term. So, yes, they were following the law, but you know what? They violated the relationship between them and the host. Does that make sense? And so, really, from a biblical model, they're alienated. They're sinners. I'm sorry. Um, but Jesus then says, all right, um, go out to um, the, the, the lame and the blind and the poor. Get them in. Oh, it's, they're all here, Lord. Go out to the byways, the far streets, okay, and get them in. Compel them to come in. Side note. Sometimes uh, one interpretation of a, t of a scripture can be absolutely perilous. That word compel there, bring them in. Force them to come in. Ever since the 400s, Augustine, St. Augustine, gave a lousy interpretation of that text that uh, brought about the Inquisition, brought about all kinds of forced conversions throughout history of the Christianity. It's, done, it's, it's atrocious. The word does mean compel, forcefully, not by violence, but forcefully. But he totally missed the social point of this. This is a high-class status person going out to poor folks and out in the streets and saying, hey, there's a banquet. You're invited. Come on in. Oh, no, I can't. That would be the appropriate etiquette response. No, I can't. One, I don't have the clothes. One, I, no, no. No, we really want you here. No, we really want you to this banquet. Oh, no, I can't. Hey, we really do. Here's the clothes. Here's the ride. We want you this banquet. That's the overwhelming. Now, here's what's wild. Jesus will end this would go, guess what? None of those who were invited and did not respond, will get a taste of my banquet. Are you hearing me? Now, who's been being invited always since chapter 5? The official Israel, including the Pharisees. All right, here we go. 15, 1 to 2, we've noted it. Who's introduced? Jesus, of course. We've already seen what he is about. And when we see a story, by the way, um, a story has characters. 
Now, uh, you Lord of the Ring fans out there, you'll notice as soon as you see a uh, hobbit, you go, good guy. You see an orc, but you go, okay, like this, right? So characters are introduced very early in a, in a movie or a story, and you understand them that way. So in this story here, um, we've already seen Jesus, tax collectors and sinners. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Tax collectors. Do not think IRS. <laughs> think TSA. Because <laughs> in the ancient world, in the, the Palestine area, every time you went, if you were in Capernaum, every time Simon Peter and his uh, companions caught fish, they had to go pay a portion of that catch to uh, Herod Agrippa. And guess who would do that? Levi, the tax collector. He would actually come up, hey, Levi, how you doing? Here, here's, here's a quarter of my catch. Lachaim. That would, and by the way, they were known for being dishonest because tax collectors, they're really toll collectors is what they are. By the way, they also would be on every um, uh, entryway. For, for example, if you're going from uh, Galilee to Judea or back and forth, it's like every time you would cross over uh, the river to go to Kentucky, you'd have to stop at a pole, uh, at a, uh, a tolling station, and they would do exactly what the TSA folks do, pop it open, look at, uh, at this, and they'd have an armed uh, soldier right next to them, and so if they're rifling, so, oh, I need tax on this, or I need tax, or I want part of this for my taxing, what would you do? Yes, sir. Um, they were known for dishonesty. They were known for brutality. And um, in fact, Pharisees, if they had to pay taxes, would give the exact amount because they wanted no change back because they figured that change was ripped off. That's how they're not, they're not known for honesty. But here's the irony. In the book of Luke, all the way back to John the Baptist's preaching, they're going, yeah, we saw the x-ray. We're in real deep trouble. What do we do? And so you've got tax collectors in the book of Luke becoming responsive. In fact, in chapter 5, one of them who responded to John the Baptist's ministry was named Levi. And Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. And he drives everything right there and says, I'm in. Now, this is significant because he's the guy who wrote the first gospel. We know him as Matthew. So one of these folks is right here. And so Jesus is on his elbow eating with tax collectors and sinners. Guess what? One of them wrote the first gospel. So here is Jesus doing this. Sinners. A sinner is, by the way, all of us, and we know that. So I'm not going to do what Nathan Norman says and raise hands. We'll leave those down today. No pick on. But um, remember all the way back to uh, Luke 5. Peter says, that would be me. Um, Luke 7, the sinful woman story. It just happened a little earlier ago in the narrative. And she comes in acknowledging her sinfulness. The Pharisee who had invited him was totally unwilling. In fact, he says Jesus can't be a prophet because he would know what kind of woman this is who's touching him. He's doing that in his head. To show he's a, more than a prophet, Jesus says, oh, by the way, Simon, I know what you're thinking, so here. Now, the end of the story is amazing because um, Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are are forgiven. Your faith in me has saved you. Shalom. Go in peace. Now, if you look at that narrative, the Pharisee 
left that account still in debt to God. But here's this woman. So I'm convinced, uh, this takes a little bit of an imagination, I'm also convinced it's plausible, Luke, you'll tell me if it's true, um, it's plausible that another person at that gathering in chapter uh, 15, 1 to 2, is the sinful woman. She's become a disciple and follower of Jesus. She doesn't look the same. Her shame is gone. Her name is changed. She is one of his followers. You ask me who I am? I'm a follower of Jesus today, she's saying. But we got the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Oh, my goodness, Lord. All right, I'm in trouble. The Pharisees. Normally when you hear Pharisees, you think, bad guys, bad. Okay. But understand something. The Pharisees were about 6,000 strong. They were committed to the law of Moses. They loved God. They thought they were serving God in everything they did. In fact, they believed they had two key life verses. You remember that kind of expression in the Christian world, life verses. One was Exodus 19. Where God said, you are a kingdom of priests to me. The other was Leviticus 10.10. Where you must learn to keep the common and the uncommon. The clean from the unclean and separate them. They understood that the holiness of the temple must be now brought to the holiness of everyday life in every circumstance. Especially at meals. The Pharisees borrowed something from the Greeks called the symposia. It was a meal where you would sit like this and on your elbow and eat and talk philosophy. Well, the Pharisees said, that's not a bad idea. We'll sit on our elbows and eat sacred food. The table will be the altar of God, and he will show up, and we'll talk Torah. It's like us saying, all right, the communion table at the end here, we're going to turn it into a party. Pharisees, no, you're not. It's a sacred moment. So here is Jesus on his elbow eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they're miffed. They're going, how in the world can he be the Messiah? How can he be? He's doing this. And so they grumble. Why? Because he's welcoming them and eating with them. Enough said. Now, the word grumble here is a fun word, gagudzo. If you want to learn a little Greek, it's really kind of fun. Gagudzo. And if you say it really well, you spit when you're saying it. Gagudzo, Okay. <laughs> Because it actually sounds like it is. It's, it's grumbling. And it's a great example. Now, what's wild is Luke says they're doing this. Now, if you're Theophilus, this is all written to Theophilus, Luke and Acts. Um, he knows his Old Testament. This word gagudzo is only used in the first five books of Moses, once in Joshua. And it's used of the people grumbling against God and God's leaders. Normally, it's against God himself. Now, the classic is Numbers 14 at Kadesh Barnea, where all the people are grumbling against um, the spies. Remember the two went in and said, let's go in. The ten said, nope, giants. And the whole nation started grumbling and complaining. Against whom? Yahweh, God himself. God says, okay, I'm going to grant your wish. You're all going to die in the wilderness. Whoa. Well, that was pretty good. Um, so grumbling is God's um, opponents. It's his, those who resist him. So please understand the narrative. 
The Pharisees, from the very first time they introduced in Luke chapter 5, a lame guy is dropped to the roof of uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. And Jesus says, looks at them and sees their faith and says, your sins are forgiven. They what? Grumble. They complain. In fact, they charge him with blasphemy. They're not doing this verbally, by the way. They're doing it in their heads. Again, Jesus says, all right, to show that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. Get out of here. Have a good day. Again, Pharisees, they've been resisting him since chapter 5. Their very first moment, they got introduced to the story. And so when you're hearing them introduced here and then hear this word gaguzo, you're going, uh-oh. Now we've got three parables coming. Remember, I'm going to be brief on them, the first two. You can read them in your own, but I'm going to have a couple highlights because there's a punchline I've got to get here. There are three of them. But notice they're all addressed to the Pharisees. Again, remember, Jesus is on his elbow. He's eating with the responsive. He's eating with them. They're in. But he's addressing this to the Pharisees to appeal to them, to appeal to them to get on board. The first is the lost sheep, and I'm just going to highlight it. He says, which one of you had 100 sheep, one went missing? By the way, the way they would do this is every night they'd count them. They'd count them by name. And finally, they get to um, uh, Susanna. Susanna, Susanna, Susanna. No, nothing. He mobilizes. He's out of here. He goes and listens and waits and finds. He keeps seeking. Note the word until. Until he finds, he can hear her. Because all she's doing is she sat down somewhere out there in the wilderness. And don't think beautiful southern Ohio. Think Arizona. So she's out there at risk. And every sound she makes is, come eat me, come eat me, come eat me, come eat me. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, here comes the shepherd. Yay! Boom! On my shoulders. Let's go home, Susanna. By the way, it's funny because he doesn't go back to the, uh, the field with her. He takes her home. He's so excited and he throws all of his, gets all of his friends. They throw a banquet and guess what? You got your word lost. You got the word seek. You got the word find. And you got the word joy and you got the word shared joy, celebration. All of it right there. In the same way, Jesus says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than those who don't need repentance. And you know what's really sad here? The Pharisees thought they were one of the 99. And all the readers of Luke is going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you're lost. Oh my goodness, you guys don't get it. The second parable, the lost coin. Now we have a woman. She's, she's married probably. She's the uh, uh, head of the household because she can make all this happen. It's a small little village town. And what does she do? She loses one of her ten coins. Now, there used to be uh, one scholar uh, talked about the headdress. There's no evidence for that at all. She's got ten coins. She's, she's a poor lady. She's poor. She's got ten days' worth of sustenance here. Each one of these coins is one day's wages worth of value. They're drachmas. It's a silver drachma, and she loses one. 
Now, by the way, they don't roll. They're flat. And they're kind of oblong. These, oh, it's flat somewhere. And what does she do? She grabs a little oil lamp, lights it, puts it up on a stand, and she grabs her straw broom and gets busy. How busy? She keeps busy, 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 seeking, seeking, seeking until she finds it. Then what she do? She gets out into the street and yells at all of her lady friends, Hey, I got it. And they, what? Lost coin, low value, but not to her. Not to her. You ever felt that way? Not to God. Not to this seeking Savior. He'll seek you until he finds you. And there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. In fact, then Jesus adds this little comment. Even the angels rejoice. Oh, goodness, I'm in trouble. Even the angels rejoice. Go back to Luke 1 and 2. What angels would be included? Gabriel. Remember Gabriel who said hi to John the Baptist's daddy, Zechariah, and said you're going to have this amazing son who's going to go before the Lord? Oh, by the way, Mary, you're going to have this son who's going to save the world. Oh, by the way, I'm Gabriel. I stand before the presence of God. I'm announcing God's plan. Can you imagine when this plan is actually working? When one of you said yes to this seeking Messiah, don't you know Gabriel was high-fiving Michael all over the cosmos? That's joy. I've got three minutes to wrap up. Wow, goodness gracious. No? Ten, Fifteen. From the boss, okay, right here. You heard it. Okay. I got fifteen. There's one more parable. And please... Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, that's well done. I like that. Okay, all right. He's so sharp. All right. Um, but notice something. In Luke 3, 5, 15, 3, it says there's one parable. He's giving one parable. There are three. What's up with that? Well, they all have the same point. They're all coming together. They're one main idea. And again, Jesus is on his elbow. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's gathered around by... Um, Tax collectors who are now reformed, they trusted in him, they've repented, they've trusted in him, they're good to go. They're a part of the kingdom. They've got their uh, banquet ticket punched. They're in. That's why they're going L'chaim, they're celebrating, they're enjoying this. Little note, um, I think it was uh, Dylan who made, him who has ears, let him hear, I don't know if, if I heard that from him. Notice the end of chapter 14. That's exactly what Jesus says. And notice chapter 15, verse 1. It's the tax collectors and sinners who are actually drawing near to here. Isn't that cool? They're the ones who are drawing in. They're the ones saying in. So guess what? God says, I don't care where you're from. Draw near. I gotcha. Well, there's one more. Lost sheep, lost coin. A man had two sons. A man had two sons. By the way, uh, I forgot to mention this. I just saw my note here. Um, <laughs> the term lost doesn't mean I can't find Milwaukee. The term lost means I'm in danger. 
Some of you are too young to ever even remember this. Uh, lost in space. Yeah. What happens when the robot shows up? What's he say every time? Danger, danger. Okay. Now you got it. The word lost means danger of perishing. That's going to be very important here in a moment. And that's the risk here. Well, wow, I went pretty well without touching my notes. Pretty fun. What do you do? All right. Here we go. The man has two sons. Let's look at this text because I want to look at the text itself and kind of pull off uh, since I've got a, a little extra moment. All right. The young son. Younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate, the substance. So he divided his property between them. Note the plural. He divides the property between both. Now, legally, um, remember, this is an agricultural society. This is land. He's apparently a wealthy landowner with sons who would be inheriting it. But according to the uh, Pentateuch, according to Torah, the law, he could either um, will it to his sons, which was the normal way of doing this, or he could gift it to his sons while they were alive. Now, remember, Sirach, one of the uh, Jewish uh, literature pieces that were going on at the time, about the time of Jesus, do not do that. Do not do that. Warning, warning. Don't distribute your stuff while you're still alive. Not smart, not smart. Well, this father Showing his graciousness. Now, this is an important note here. Um, the father legally could do this. The son could legally ask for this. But please get this point. This son is dishonoring his father in his culture. This is a publicly, powerfully, hateful, shameful display of loathsomeness, okay, it's hard to say that, loathsomeness toward his father. He has fractured, ruptured, severed his relationship. I'm 18. I got to get away. I got to get out of this place. Please understand as we look at the details here, this young man is you and me. This young man is every human being because all of us are a rebel inside. All of us have our fists clenched with God. And he spent a whole lot of time and effort to get us to do this. The story continues. He gets at his inheritance. Verse seven, 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. This took a little time because, remember, he has to turn um, land. And by the way, while his dad is alive, and some scholars would actually use this idea that, Dad, I really want you to die so I can get your stuff. That's, I think, mm, probably not defensible, but the idea I've, I'm harming and severing my relationship is very clear. The shame component, dishonor component, very clear. That's all true here. It takes him a while because he has to actually, again, 
return the land, he has to go find someone beyond probably the immediate vicinity because they're going to honor the father. They don't want to do this. You kidding me? You want to? T- no, I'm not into this. So he's got to go far enough. Well, here, I've got a, a, a deed, a title to this. Give me money on my title. Okay. Because as long, until that father dies, the, um, the interest on that land goes back to dad until dad kaputs. So this son is basically going and finding someone who's going to be willing to give him money on his title. Make sense? Now he's going to pack it all up, and he's going to head out. And the language is pretty interesting. It goes to a distant country. Note the word distant. Note the sheep. Distant. A distant land. Probably Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory, so he can actually put his religious background and history behind him. He squanders his wealth with wild living. Literally, he scattered. He gathered, he scattered. Wild living, normally associated with two things, immorality and booze. He's living it up. Well, Things are about ready to get real. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, didn't take long, we don't know how long, a severe famine came in. God has a funny way of getting our attention sometimes, doesn't he? Sometimes nature is one of those things. He went out, I'm sorry, he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen. Literally, he attached himself to a citizen of that foreign country that distant land, who sent him out to do what? To take wonderful care of the sheep that he had that were wonderfully kosher. Oops. Feed pigs. As a Jew, even if you weren't a religious Jew, this was absolutely the lowest you could ever hit. Pigs were actually unclean animals. They're not on the barbie. They're not on the menu. Read Leviticus 11 to give you the details. Even if you're a decent Jew today, you won't do it. He, who, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating. By the way, but he you know, couldn't go there. But no one gave him anything. Remember, it's famine time. He's broke. Where's the generosity? Where's the care? Verse 17 is critically important. He came to his senses. That word is only used twice in the New Testament. This is epiphany time. This is one of the greatest gifts God can give you. A moment of clarity in the midst of our sin when we're in the pig pen and all of a sudden heaven goes light, light, light. It comes into the brain and you go, wow. And what's this epiphany? I am perishing. That word perish, we've heard the word lost. Lost sheep, lost coin. This is the verb form of that same word. I am perishing. Bah! Bah! I'm dead meat. Have you had that moment of clarity? 
I pray that the Spirit of the living God will give it to you because it's the first step. Jesus is actually giving us the clearest picture of what he means by the word repentance in his entire teaching. It's this shock. Come to my senses. I'm perishing. But we're not over. He now recognizes his sin is against whom? I've sinned against heaven, God. I've sinned against my Father. Two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor. Sin is always legal. It's always relational. First against God and secondly against someone else. But notice, there's no, dad made me do this. I, oh, there's no blaming. There's no minimizing. There's no blame shifting. The old line, not my father, not my mother, not my brother. It's who? It's me, oh Lord. Here we are. But it's in this moment of clarity that something else comes through. Notice what he says about his father. He says, I will set up, I will get up and go back to my father. There's something he knows about the nature of his father. Remember this gracious father that we had introduced? He was always gracious. Always gracious. And it's that that gives him hope. It's this graciousness of this God that brings Jesus. It's this graciousness that brings Jesus to this center and says, if you would acknowledge your condition and trust in me, I'm going to make you right with God. This is grace, y'all. Him seeking. But all of a sudden, this enlightenment, he goes, my father's house. Now, and then he rehearses this statement, by the way, and we're going to wrap it quickly. Um, I'm going to say, Dad, I sinned against heaven, against you. Make me as one of your hired servants. Now, two things. One, this is a genuine, I think, view, uh, understanding of I'm in trouble. There's a genuine expression of faith in Dad. And if, that's a picture of faith. He's trusting in him. But there's still a little bit of the Jewish um, rabbinic idea, God, i got to pay you back for this. Make me as one of your day laborers. I'll do day labor. I'll show up every day. I'll work for you. I'll pay back a little bit so I can hang out at the house. So he's got this worked out. And Jesus is going to take this on. Notice what he does. He shows up. He goes up, goes to his father. But verse uh, 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, the only way the father would see him is the father's been looking for him. And he knows when he sees him. The father does something now that no Middle Eastern father would ever do. What he should be doing when he sees his son is join the community in throwing rocks at him. What he should do is walk up to him with his right hand and slap him behind the face. And say, get out of my sight. What's he do? He sees him, and it says, moved with compassion. 
And it's fun, if you look at the original language, his guts are moved. His guts are moved. And what's he do? He raises his garment, his robe, which no decent um, man in the community would ever do, especially an older gentleman of his status. But what's he do? He does this, and he gets moving. Pretty good for an old man, right? And he is moving. Again, the audacity, the craziness. That's the point of this Jesus is making. This is so audacious, no, so ridiculous. No father in the planet would do this in the Middle Eastern culture. Right. But that's why I'm on my elbow. That's why I'm eating with these folks. Because I'm representing him. I'm representing him. Now what's fun is the, um, he then, what's he do? He hugs him. I love this. He kisses him on the neck. By the way, this kiss is not just, oh, I'm glad to see you. No, this is forgiveness. Remember David and Absalom in the Old Testament? This is a kiss. You're in. Now he starts rehearsing his speech. Dad, yep, I sinned against heaven. Great. I sinned against you. Yes, you did. And he's getting ready to do the rest of the spiel. What's father do? Servants, three things. Best robe, get the ring, get sandals. He's barefoot. Oh, by the way, next thing, go grab the fat calf that we've been waiting for that will feed about 70 folks. We're talking barbecue time. And he explains, because this son who was dead is now alive. We must celebrate. Isn't it interesting? Oh, goodness, Lord. Too much time. Isn't it interesting to me, it is to me, that Jesus himself rings up the older brother's um, uh, complaint about his brother, ripping, spending all the money, uh, hookers, and the whole thing, okay? Uh, and it may have been clearly true, but what's neat to me is that Jesus actually brings that up in the story. And it assumes the father knew all this. Let me ask you a question. Did you see the father slow down one step? No. No. One of the most fundamental areas of human rebellion is sexuality. It's been broken since Genesis 3. It's one of the most basic, early, fundamental areas and arenas of rebellion, and no more so than today. But by the way, in the Roman world, it was as bad as it is today, just no internet. But isn't it amazing that this Lord Jesus says, you know what, one of the people at my table here used to be a hooker. I got this covered. I don't know what your challenges are, but you know what? This father says, I'm in. Robe, ring, sandals. Let's celebrate. I'm sorry, brother. I'm, it's my time. Okay, okay. I guess I get a, another five. All right, cool. By the way, God's throwing a banquet. You're invited. RSVP required. Repentance, faith in Jesus. Is that making sense? The Messiah picked up the price tag for your ticket. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But my last point is God is throwing a banquet. Do not miss it. God is throwing a banquet. Do not miss it. Another brother. 
Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Good translation. By the way, this is men dancing. If you ever see um, um, a fiddler on the roof with a bunch of uh, Jewish men, da, 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 da. That's what's going on here. And you're hearing the music. You're hearing the dancing. It's all going. What is going on at home? Well, he draws near and he gets an explanation. He called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Verse 27, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's home, back home safe and healthy. Healthy. Christ is the healer. He's the savior. He's the one who can, he's the great physician. He's healthy. And so we're celebrating. Now, what does the brother do? Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. He refused to go in. Go on further than I thought. Sweet. So what's the father do? His father went out and pleaded with him. Please get this. This older brother had responsibilities at this moment. He was supposed to go back in and actually be the assistant to the host of the banquet. He was to help his father. He was to aid his father. He was to honor his father in this moment. What's he do? He has never broken one of his father's commandments. Please get this point. But he will dishonor his father in full public. Listen to this. He says, Look! Look! This is out loud, out there in public with people around him. All these years I've been slaving, and that is a great word. It's dulao. I have been slaving. Remember Egypt? This is his understanding. This is showing you below the surface of his obedience is an alienation between him and his father. In fact, he says, all these years I've been slaving. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat to enjoy with you, Dad. Oops, that's not what it says. To enjoy with my friends. Now we know the genuineness of this story. Yes, he has kept all the commandments, but he has not honored his father. In fact, he's dishonoring him in full public view. Here's my little artwork. Very little. Let me tell you that the Pharisees are just like every really wonderfully religious person. In fact, they're probably better than any other religious person on the planet. They are like every person who, in your neighborhood who's listening to me now, who's basically a decent, good person, who doesn't kick the cat, they buy the Girl Scout cookies, they're basically a nice person. Why do I need Jesus? Well, glad you asked. Here are the Pharisees. The Pharisees know the exam. If you can see this, I hope. Here's the exam. The Pharisees have 613 Old Testament commands they know extremely well. In fact, they have organized an entire uh, book about this thick. I was going to bring it, but I chose not to, uh, about how to make sure they didn't violate one of these. They were like a, a bunch of students in a, uh, an exam, taking an exam. I've given them one or two of these, so this is kind of fun. So here are, 
are the questions, okay? All the way down to 613. They've taken the exam, and then they're going to self-grade. And here, 100% A+. Oops. And then the Messiah comes in, just like the professor. And says, wrong exam. Do you get this? You dishonored me. The Pharisees are being appealed to by Jesus. He's on his elbow. Please, come in. I love you, Israel. I want you in my banquet. I chose you. You're precious to me. In fact, he tells his son, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. I love you, son. But they risk missing the banquet. There's one little note here before we take communion. It's this. This dishonor that the father absorbed, this appropriate anger that he should have expressed. Remember, he was shamed and humiliated in public by both sons. He absorbed his natural appropriate anger. He absorbed it. Muslim scholars would actually, um, Islamic scholars would say, see, you can be okay with God without a sacrifice. And one of the things that Ken Bailey has done well is make the point that within the larger story, it's very clear. Luke 22 is amazing because Jesus is preparing the table that we call the Lord's table. This is the bread of my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. And he says... I will not drink this again to you, with you until it's fulfilled at the banquet at the kingdom. Oh, you guys get this? This invitation is engraved. It's engraved with the very blood of the Messiah. And so when we participate in this meal in a moment, if you are like one of those like me who's gathered around him, yeah, I'm in because I know how evil I am. I'm sin, I, I need you like crazy. I'm in. You know what? Every time we take this meal, we're reminded, yes, of the price it took to get us at that seat, but secondly, it reminds us of the future banquet we get to enjoy. Do you realize that in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, meal fellowship is absolutely important because every time it's a picture of that which we're sharing now, but we'll ultimately share together with the Messiah, the Lord of the banquet at the table. My question is simple. Have you RSVP'd?